Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Uh, Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church, and I'm so glad you're here. Um, And um, I I just want to talk about a couple of things before I get into today's teaching. First, and uh, I I think most importantly to me and Sharon, I want to thank all of you for your outpouring of love over this last couple of weeks uh, in response to uh, the passing of Sharon's dad. And um, it, uh, of course, has been a challenging season, um, but um, it's made easier by the love and care of all the people in our congregation, and so thank you so much. Um, so uh, we all go through challenging times, don't we? But it makes it it makes it uh, a lot easier when we go through them together. Um, the second thing that, that I want to mention is as we watch the uh, events unfold in the Ukraine, uh, there's a lot that could be said about that. I'll simply say that um, our partner, Convoy of Hope, our disaster relief partner, is already engaged uh, helping refugees and helping people who, whose lives are being devastated by this horrific, um, this horrific, um, action, uh, that has taken place. And so I just want you to know that, that as you guys are supporting our plus life missions and supporting the church financially, that, you know, we're doing a lot of things with a lot of partners around the world and around this area. But one of the key things that we do is every month we support at a very high level convoy of hope, who is just simply one of the best disaster relief agencies in the world. And, and, uh, they're, there and at work. And so I just want you to know that as a consequence, you're already engaged as a part of this local church. So, and then finally, um, I know that uh, Ben and Liz already talked about the fact that Lent launches this week, and they talked about Ash Wednesday. I just want to lend my voice to this. This is a beautiful time of the year where we join with Christians from around the world and uh, from over many centuries in the celebration of Lent. And the, the purpose of Lent is to spend 40 days, beginning with Ash Wednesday until Easter, uh, you don't, you don't count the Sundays, uh, but 40 days focusing on Jesus and, um, traditions are worthless in and of themselves, but traditions that are followed with proper motivation and for the right reasons are very important. They become means of grace, something that God can use in our lives. And so, um, a lot of people think about Lent in terms of what they're giving up for Lent. And, and that's good as long as that's not just a religious exercise for the sake of giving something up so you feel better about yourself. That's not the purpose of fasting. It's not the purpose of giving something up. If you're giving something up so you can focus more on the person of Jesus, who he is, what he did, and to prepare your heart to receive the, the, the message of the gospel as we get to good 
Friday and Easter, then giving up something can be a very good thing. I will be giving up uh, something and and uh, doing uh, some uh, extra fasting during the Lenten season. And um, I encourage you to do that as long as the purpose for it is to focus on Jesus. Um, doesn't do any good to fast or pray or to follow any spiritual discipline if the purpose isn't to focus on Jesus. So, with that in mind, this coming Wednesday night, one service for Ash Wednesday, about an hour long, uh, there'll be wonderful music, and uh, I'll do a brief message, and we'll do the imposition of the ashes. If you've never participated in an Ash Wednesday here at the Life Christian Church, I really encourage you to come be a part of it and let this launch you in the Lenten season. Of course, another good thing about the fact that it's Lent, it means spring is on its way. And so that's a wonderful thing, and and before you know it, uh, uh, you're going to find all kinds of weather excuses to not be here on a Sunday. So I'm praying for terrible weather all through spring and summer. And no, I'm not. I'm kidding. Uh, so spring is coming. All right. So uh, N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, uh, talks about how that uh, that a friend of his uh, inherited a business from his friend's father, and he said it sounds like a rather grand sort of a thing to inherit a multinational corporation from one's father, uh, as if fresh from your excellent schooling, you occupy the office next door to dad and rule over the company and uh, in time rule over it by yourself and um, enjoy the lifestyle of business at that level, the lunches, the golf, the foreign trips, and all the rest. However, this, this guy's dad was a better father than a dad who would let his son so quickly occupy the office next to him. He rather wanted his son to learn the business from the ground up. So long before he occupied an office at all, uh, his son was working in the workshops along with the mechanics to see how the product they sold actually was made, um, visiting suppliers to see uh, the raw materials and to, to understand uh, the value of the resources that they were utilizing. Uh, he was working with the sales force to uh, see how you actually sell the thing that was being sold. He spent a considerable amount of time in the financial department watching the numbers numbers being crunched, and only when he'd fully understood what was going on at the ground level in the business did he get an office, and then it wasn't next door to dad. It was then to start learning now how to manage and how to lead and uh, about human resources and uh, about uh, how the business engaged with local and national governmental officials and, and, and so on. And only then when he'd gone through that regimen did that did he find himself on track to actually lead the business that he was to inherit. Today, I'm going to be teaching through Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. But I, I want to begin at the end of that section, uh, and then I'll go back and work my way back to this, because it relates to, to this idea of a son learning the father's business from the ground up. Here's, here's what the writer to the Hebrews said about Jesus. He said, while Jesus was here on earth, 
He offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. So let's work our way through that passage and uh, uh, use this as an introduction to the text, even though it's the end of the text that I'm going to talk about. Hebrews 5, 7, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Now, he didn't save him from dying, but he did save him from death. Jesus, the Son of God, was sent to this planet, among other things, to learn what it was like to be a human being and to be successful as a human being. Part of this was that Jesus experienced the kind of things that all of us other human beings experience. That's why the prelude to the passage we're going to teach about today includes that famous passage, Hebrews 4.15, that tells us this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. What does it mean when it said that he faced or that he understands our weaknesses and faced all the testings we did. Well, weakness there speaks about all of human frailty. It speaks of moral human frailty. It speaks of physical human frailty. It speaks of emotional human frailty and so on. Jesus faced all the same things we face. Now, he didn't experience moral failure. He did not sin. But he did experience temptation to fail. He did experience other effects of human weakness. His, it, there's every reason to believe that he, he fell ill. Uh, he experienced the results of aging. He uh, obviously uh, experienced dying itself. Uh, we also know that there are times he was caught up in great emotional anguish. He, he faced the same weaknesses we face. Yet he, he was somehow successful in the face of all of that. The uh, climatic moment, of course, of him facing human weakness is when he faced dying on the cross. He experienced the most frightening thing any of us will ever experience, facing death itself. And he knew what it was like in the face of that most difficult human circumstance to, to want to give up, to want to give up on his God-given assignment and to not have to go through what it was that he was facing. We're told in the gospel of Mark that they went to a place called Gethsemane and he, Jesus, began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Luke's gospel tells us, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus knew what it was to face the same kinds of things that we face, even at humanity's very worst, and to want to give up, but 
He didn't give up. And then Hebrews goes on to say, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. So what came from his human experience? He learned obedience from the things he suffered. He, if you please, learned the family business from the ground up. He got a a, a human-level view of what God was doing in the universe. What's God's family business, if you please? Well, uh, in, in the big cosmic sense, it's ruling the universe itself. But in relationship to what we're studying in Hebrews, it has to do with be, God being reconciled to human beings. It has to do with human beings being restored to their purpose. It has to, to do with what happens through salvation, which when we're saved, we're reconciled to God in relationship and we're restored to God in terms of our purpose. So Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. He, he got an understanding of what God was up to on this planet. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews wrote, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This does not mean Jesus passed from disobedience to obedience, nor does it mean that he developed from imperfection to perfection. The idea is that he became complete in his human experience. I cannot overstate to you the importance of this to all of us, not just to this text, but to all of us, that Jesus Christ, through his human sufferings, became complete in his human experience. And as a consequence, he now can represent God to us, and he can represent us to God, which is the essence of what it means to be a priest, or in his case, to be the perfect high priest. Here's what the text goes on to say, Hebrews 5, 9, in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Here's what N.T. Wright wrote. He wrote, one might have thought that being God's son would simply be a matter of sharing God's rule of the world, living in glory and bliss. Not so. The God who is the father of Jesus is the God who made the world in the first place, and he remains deeply committed to his creation, even though it has become wayward and corrupt. If Jesus is to be his son, he must learn what this creation business is about, what it will take to rescue it from the mess it has got itself into. He must get to know its depths as well as its heights. He must learn what it means to be his father's obedient son, and that will mean suffering, not because God is a sadist who simply wants to see his dear son having a rough time of it, but because the world which God made and loves is a dark and wicked place, and the son must suffer its sorrow and pain in order to rescue it. See, what he experienced, what he learned, qualifies him to be the perfect high priest. And that's really what today's message is about. See, just to remind you what's going on in Hebrews, and if you're new to us, uh, perhaps it would be good for you to know that uh, beginning early in January, we started teaching verse by verse through this glorious New Testament, but somewhat complicated New Testament book called Hebrews. And I'll just remind you that uh, this pastor who wrote this 
sermon to the Hebrews is writing to a group of people who were incredibly discouraged. It's the mid-60s ADs, the best we can tell. This is a group of Jewish Christians very rooted in the Old Testament who are uh, living in Rome. Uh, they are, they've suffered persecution. They've been marginalized by society. They are terribly, terribly discouraged. And the writer to the Hebrews is, is saying to them, hey, listen, I know that many of you have stopped attending services because you're so discouraged. I know that many of you are thinking about going back to pre-conversion uh, uh, lifestyles, either back to the synagogue or to some other pre-conversion lifestyle. But I want you to know, the writer to the Hebrews says, who Jesus really is. And I want you to understand that Jesus is greater than any problem you're facing, and he's greater than than anyone else you could go to or any place else you could go. Jesus is greater than that. And in this text, he's saying to these Jewish Christians who had a deep understanding of the of the high priesthood of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the perfect high priest who was made a way for them into the presence of God to such an extent that he completely and fully understands them, that he's a high priest who's experienced what they've experienced. He knows what it's like to be discouraged. He knows what it's like to want to give up. He knows what it's like to think about uh, walking away from your God-given assignment. He understands understands that. So says the writer to the Hebrews. And not only does he understand it, but he also can help you face what you're facing and help you be successful in facing what you're facing as well. And last week's text, which, which executive pastor Ben Stapley did a great job working through, leads us into this week's text. And it's a classic text, Hebrews 4.14. So then we have a great high priest. Again, remember guys, the, the writer of the Hebrews isn't interested in talking about theology for the sake of theology. He's interested in talking about theology so people can understand God better. So that when they understand God better, it makes a difference in how they think, how they approach life, the way they pray, whether or not they give up or hang in there, whether or not they experience eternal life or not. This is why he's talking about high priests and all these other things that get talked about in Hebrews, because it makes a difference in their lives. And here's an example. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do yet he did not sin so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most guys when it's all said and done Today is not just about learning something about God. It's learning something about God to such a degree that you will approach him boldly at the point where you need it the most. And that you will know that he and his power can help you to overcome anything you face. Okay. So... Let's get into today's text. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10 are the verses we're covering. I've already covered the last few. I'll briefly reference them at the end. Let's dig in here at the beginning, and let's divide this, uh, these 10 verses into three sections. And let me do it this way. Three perspectives on the perfect high priest. 
three perspectives on the perfect high priest. So here's the first one. It's this world is ruled by a human being. This world is ruled by a human being. Here's what Hebrews 5, 1 through 3 says. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He represents, or pardon me, he presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And because he's a human being, now he's talking now at this moment, not about Jesus. He's talking about Aaron, the first high priest and those high priests who descended from him. He's talking about human high priests, but he's going to make the point that Jesus is similar to them in some ways. And then later in this text, he's going to make the point he's completely other than them in other ways. But right now he's making the comparison and he's talking about human high priests. Let me go back and read it again. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And because he's a human being, he's able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. Now the writer of Hebrews, frankly, is saying... in a way that doesn't sound very nice, actually, that the people he's reading to, writing to are somewhat ignorant, meaning they don't understand what he's talking about completely, but he's about to explain it to them. And they're wayward. They're thinking about giving up on their faith. Okay? And he says the, the priest, he gets this because he's a human being, and he can deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. This is why he must offer sacrifices, the human high priest, for his own sins as well as theirs. So first of all, let's just talk about a high priest. What, what is in scripture? What is the high priest? Well, the, the high priest was chosen from among the people. God told Moses during the Exodus to choose his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons and Aaron's descendants to be the high priest over Israel. Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. Uh, God says to Moses, Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites along with his sons so they may serve me as priests. So there are a couple things happening here. On one hand, the high priest identifies with the people because he comes from among the people. On the other hand, he is unique and separate from the people in that he has a unique role to play in serving God and representing God to the people and the people to God. And so, again, the first high priest was Aaron, and all the high priest descended from Aaron. And um, they had this very unique priestly role to play where they would offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people in the tabernacle or the temple system in the Old Testament. Now, I, I will say some things that most of you know, but it's important that everybody have somewhat a grasp of this when i'll use the words tabernacle and temple um 
uh, in the same way because the ta- when we talk about the tabernacle, we're talking about the tabernacle of Moses, the plan for which God gave to Moses at Sinai and which Moses and the Israelites built. And it was this portable tabernacle that was carried through the wilderness. And um, then after the pattern of the tabernacle, uh, Solomon built his grand temple. And then that temple was destroyed and Zerubbabel rebuilt it, kind of moving through the Old Testament. And then Herod Herod came along uh, as a representative of Rome and the Jews, and Herod rebuilt Solomon's temple, and he rebuilt it in all of its glory. And when Jesus was here on earth, he worshiped and taught and so on at Herod's temple. But it's all the same thing because uh, the, 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 it, was, it was all built after the pattern of the tabernacle of Moses. The tabernacle of Moses had an, to make it very simple, had a large outer court. Maybe I'll, if you, if you don't go to sleep on me today, maybe in coming weeks, I'll actually show some kind of a diagram of this. It had a large outer court to, to, to put it simply where a lot of people could come. And then it had a holy place where only the, uh, Levitical Another story for another time, priesthood could minister and offer sacrifices and gifts. And then there was uh, an inner sanctum called the most holy place or the holy of holies, uh, which uh, was separated from the rest of the tabernacle or temple by a 60-foot long curtain. The room actually formed, if I remember correctly, a perfect cube, a 60-foot long uh, curtain that that separated everyone from the most holy place except one guy once a year who could enter it. And that one guy once a year was the high priest, Aaron or the descendants of of Aaron, who were the high priest. They were the only ones who were allowed to go into the most holy place. Now, why does anybody care about the most holy place? Well, because that's where God lived. God said that he was going to live over a piece of furniture in the most holy place called the Ark of the Covenant. You may not know anything about the Old Testament, but you know about the Ark of the Covenant because you know about Indiana Jones and you know how hard he worked to get that thing, right? So you know about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, thank two of you for smiling at least at that that sad statement. But nonetheless, that's the extent that most people know about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a piece of furniture that God said he lived over. God literally made his residence on this planet in that room called the most holy place of the Holy of Holies. That's where the manifest presence of God was. So once a year, one guy got to walk through that curtain to where God lived and he would walk into that room in order to make atonement on the day of atonement or Yom Kippur on for the sins of all the people so that God would receive the sacrifice that was made and push everyone's sins forward another year until Jesus came and made the sacrifice once and for all for all of humanity and for those who believe in him took our sins away. Okay, so that's what's going on here when we're talking about the high priest, and that was the uniqueness of his role. And, and, and so now 
The writer of the Hebrews is trying to make the point, he doesn't try, he does magnificently make the point that Jesus is the high priest in some ways similar to Aaron and his sons and in other ways completely different than Aaron and his sons. So in the passage that we've just read, the writer to the Hebrews is emphasizing the humanity of the high priest to make the point that Jesus was a human being. And part of it is that the high priest, before he would enter to the Holy of Holies, he would have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. And only then could he enter into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice on the behalf of all the people. And the reason he had to make a sacrifice for his own sins is because he was a sinner. He was a human being. He was a, there was only one human, perfect human being who ever lived, and that was Jesus Christ who becomes the perfect high priest. But this high priest was a high priest, but he was an imperfect high priest. So before he would enter to the Holy of Holies, he would make a sacrifice for his own sins. And in coming weeks, we'll get into the whole system of sacrifice and why it matters and why it's relevant and why we actually should know about it and care in 2022. But today, I'll just make it simple and say that the high priest would sacrifice a bull and when he would sacrifice the bull he'd lay his hands on the head of the bull and he would confess his sins and he would confess the sins of his family and only after he confessed his sins and made a sacrifice on his behalf only then would he walk and dare walk through the curtain into the presence of God why because a sinful person cannot stand in the presence of a sinless God and live this is what scripture teaches us. So it was only after sacrificing for his own sins that he could enter into. Now later in Hebrews, we'll learn that when Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross and therefore made it to where no other sacrifice ever need to be made again, that he did not have to first of all make a sacrifice for his own sins because he, though he was a human being, though he faced weaknesses like we do, he did not sin. So he could go into God's presence and make a way for us to go into God's presence, but I'm getting ahead of myself when I say that right now. So, so even though Aaron had a unique and spectacular role to play as high priest, he was just a human being. Now, the comparison to Jesus is that Jesus was a human being as well. Now, he wasn't just a human being, but he was a human being as well. And it's the humanity of Jesus that is part of what makes Jesus the perfect high priest. Here's a profound truth. Here's a profound truth, and it actually is important to our lives. This is a statement from Wayne Grudem's classic and famous work on systematic theology. It's this, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. See, most of us have an understanding that Jesus was God incarnate. We know that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, but some people misguidedly think that was just a 33-year reality, that Jesus somehow ceased being human after the resurrection. He didn't cease being human. He is still a human being. He is still a man. This is why I say a human being rules over the universe. A man Again, he's not just a man. We'll get to that. But he's a man. 
This is incredibly important to think about when we approach the throne room of God that we know that we're talking to a human being. When Jesus was here on this planet, he intentionally limited himself to experience life as a human being. Now, again, this is really important. Jesus intentionally, there's a theological term, if you want to look it up, it's called kenosis, for both of you who might be interested in that. And it's this, it's this, it's this, you're laughing at me. That's okay. I can take it. Uh, I can handle it. Uh, and and, and the, the, Kenosis talks about the theological principle, the theological truth, that when Jesus came to this planet, that he intentionally limited his godness. Now, he was God, but he wouldn't tap into his godness to gain an unfair advantage over the rest of us. He was dependent, the New Testament teaches us, on the Father to to lead him and guide him, and he was dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came and descended on on him as a dove, he needed the Holy Spirit because he was limiting, he really was a human being. He really was a human being. So when he faced sin and overcame sin, he wasn't doing it as God, he was doing it as a human being empowered by the Father and the Holy Spirit. And part of why he did that was to show us how to live and how to tap into the power that's even outside of ourselves. So you'll see that, you know, verses like Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. See, Jesus had to learn obedience in order to qualify as the perfect high priest. He had to learn the Father's business. He was being taught the Father's business. He limit, he didn't tap into his God. He didn't lay there in the manger being fully developed as a human being. He was a baby. He had to grow. He was, the point is this, he was a human being. Now, here's the other point. He still is a human being, but after his death, burial, resurrection, he now fully taps into the God that he is. So he is fully God, fully man, but now fully living in the power of his deity. Here's a passage of scripture that that lays this out pretty beautifully. Philippians chapter two, verse five, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. If you please, we could say it this way. He didn't cheat. It's like, it's not like when he, so when he was facing some situation or, or, or about to do a miracle or, or whatever, he was depending on the Father and the Holy Spirit to help him do the thing that he was doing because he, he was intentionally living as a human being. He didn't use his equality with God as something to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And this is the kenosis thing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And notice this big word right there. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Now he's going to move to the big office. Do you get the point? Now... (laughs) He, he, he takes over, or perhaps it could even be said, retakes over the universe. He's had his 33 years where he's just living as a human being, but now he's done what he came to do, and now he is in all of his glory and power. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we, in our perfect high priest, get the best of both worlds we get a human being who knows what it's like to be a human being we get god who is god in all of his glory and power that is who's sitting on the throne of the universe and that's who we talk to when we approach the throne of grace boldly So, so in other words, okay, you say, what does the world does this have? You probably aren't saying this, but my imagining that you're interested in this, I would say, perhaps you might say, of course I'm being funny, you're being great. Here's a question you might be asking. What does this have to do with the Hebrews in the first century? They're so, they're discouraged out of their minds. They're thinking about giving up. They're thinking about going back to something that was great, but less than Jesus who fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, hey guys, listen, you're discouraged. Let me tell you what, he knows what it's like to be discouraged. Hey guys, you're depressed. He knows what it's like to be anguished in his soul. You're feeling sorrow. You're afraid of facing death. He knows what it's like to be so afraid of facing death that he sweats until blood comes out of his pore. And, and, And that's the one who's sitting on the throne in heaven with all the power in the universe. And if you go talk to him, he will not only understand you, he has the power to help you in your time of need. Which leads me to my next obvious point, which I've kind of already made. It's that Jesus is much more than a human being. Hebrews, so he's a human being, but he's much more than a human being. Hebrews 5, 4 through 6, and no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become a high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, and now as a writer of the Hebrews frequently does, he quotes from an Old Testament passage, in this case the second psalm, you are my son. This is God 
the father speaking to his son, Jesus. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, and now he quotes from the 110th Psalm, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right. So, God the Father called Jesus to play this role of a perfect high priest. God was looking for someone to represent him to humanity and humanity to him. And so God the Father calls Jesus to come to this planet, to experience life as a human being, to be complete in his human experience, so that when he's ascended to the throne room in heaven and he's running the family business, the universe and everything to do with humanity, that humanity can can relate and he can relate to them and God can show up and do things that only God can do, okay? So God calls Jesus to do this. And now the writer of Hebrews is trying to make the point, in one way this is similar to the Aaronic priesthood, but now I want you to understand it's completely other than the Aaronic priesthood. This is something different. Jesus was not descended from Aaron. He was descended from God the Father. And so he quotes here from the second psalm where where. Where, which was a psalm that David wrote soon after he was made king over Israel. But it was a psalm about David, and it was a psalm about David's son, the Messiah, who would come in the person of Jesus Christ and sit on David's throne forever. So the second psalm, I have, it's called a messianic psalm. I have installed my king on Zion. You are, this is God speaking. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So the father says to the son, you're going to inherit everything in the universe. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying he's like Aaron and that was he, he was a human being who was called by God, but he's unlike Aaron and that he didn't descend from Aaron, he descended from God. And his inheritance is everything. He is king of the world. So this high priest is different than the high priest you're used to. And then he also then says that this high priest is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If your eyes haven't rolled yet today, you can roll them now as I now will talk just for a moment about Melchizedek, but but issue this warning for uh, uh, for adult viewing in coming weeks. That didn't sound right, did it? I didn't think through that one. Uh, as I issue this warning, that Melchizedek actually becomes a central figure over the next few chapters of Hebrews. So at some point, we'll have to get into him a little bit, but here's enough of an introduction so that we can understand this text. Uh, Melchizedek is this, is this um, mysterious figure who showed up one time in all of Scripture, uh, uh, and that was all the way back in Genesis. In fact, Genesis chapter 14. And Melchizedek uh, was, a, was, was someone who we learn later in Hebrews had no beginning and no end. There's no genealogy that lets us know where he came from. There's nothing that tells us where he went. And because of what he did when he showed up in Genesis, it's believed by most theologians, well, I think it's believed by all theologians, that at the very least, that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, but believed by many theologians that Melchizedek was actually the pre-incarnate Christ, or Christophany, as one would say, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus actually showing up on the planet for a particular purpose. 
Frankly, I don't know what I think, and, and, and I don't think it's, well, I guarantee it's not important for us to know in order to understand this text. The point that the writer is making is that Jesus is like Aaron in the fact he's a human being that's called by God to do a particular work, but he's unlike Aaron in that he's directly descended from God the Father, and he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here's what Genesis says in part about Melchizedek. Genesis 4. Let let, let me just, right frame of mind to, 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 to appreciate Melchizedek. Think Gandalf. Think Lord of the Rings, mysterious figure showing up who you don't understand, who has these mysterious powers, but you don't know... Gandalf is fantasy. Melchizedek is real. But nonetheless, just to get you in the right frame of mind, I'm going to grow my beard that long, but I have to get a wig if this is going to work in coming weeks. All right. So here's what scripture actually says about Melchizedek. And I need to hurry. Genesis 14, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He made covenant with Abram or Abraham. He was a priest of God most high and he blessed Abraham. And then it goes on to say how he blessed Abraham. And then it says that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first time that we see tithing in scripture. And it's in response to this type of Christ figure or the pre-incarnate Christ showing up and interacting with Abraham, the father of the Jews and all those who believe in Jesus were taught in the New Testament. And he makes covenant with him. We know that because there was bread and wine. And he blesses. He's greater because he can bless Abraham. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And tithing only happened in that era when someone recognized the presence of deity. So there's every reason to believe that when Abraham was dealing with Melchizedek, he knew he was dealing with God or at least a a unique representative of God. Why is that important here? Because the writer of the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is like Aaron in these ways, but he's unlike Aaron in the fact that he's descended directly from God the Father. He's the king of the world, and he's descended from Melchizedek, the high priest of God, who is king of Jerusalem. And so there's a, there's a, uh, the, let me just say this for those of you taking notes and following along. So, Jesus is not a high priest with the limitations of Aaron and Aaron's descendants. Though he is a human being, he is a different kind of high priest altogether. He's directly descended from God and is God. Now, here's the psalm that the writer of Hebrews quotes from in Hebrews 5. It's Psalm 110. I want you to just listen to the power stuff in this text. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. In other words, he's going to crush evil under his feet. So the writer to the Hebrews and to us is saying, he's, he's kind of like Aaron, but he's a whole lot more than Aaron. He's the son of God, and he's a priest like Melchizedek who has so much power that he can destroy evil. All right. Let's pick up the last three verses, which I've already dealt with, so I'll be quick on this part. My third perspective, 
is that he, Jesus, is the source of eternal salvation. So we pick up the text, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. We pick it up now at verse 7. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered I hope you can understand this better now. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him, and God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So, our perfect high priest made it possible for any of us to be made right with God and to have access to God's presence. I love this quote from George Guthrie in his commentary on Hebrews where he kind of sums up the message like this. He says, or the, the message of the high priest part of Hebrews like this. He said, for the Hebrews, Jesus' high priesthood represents above all else open access to God. Rather than one who stands between God and humanity, Jesus takes us to God, ripping away the moral and ritualistic obstacles that prevented our entrance to his presence. So, all this stuff about Jesus being the high priest, like Aaron but unlike Aaron, is all about the fact that Jesus is not only a high priest who goes through the veil into God's presence, but he's the high priest who tore down the veil so that all of us can go into God's presence. When I think about, when I think about that one man once a year, that high priest descended from Aaron, who was able to go into this place called the Holy of Holies through this veil, I think about it in two ways. I think, first of all, it must have been tremendously frightening. You're a sinful human being going into the manifest presence of a holy God. But then I think once the sacrifice was accepted, can you imagine anything more wonderful in, 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 in the world than walking into the manifest presence of the God of the universe? But only one guy once a year got to experience that until Jesus, well, we're told that when Jesus died on the cross, that the veil that surrounded that room in the temple of Herod now, built after the tabernacle of Moses and temple of Solomon, that that veil was ripped in two. Matthew's gospel says, Matthew 27, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, our high priest didn't want to keep relationship with God as some exclusive privilege. He wanted all of us to have it. I, I, when, when, when I read that passage, for some reason, here's what comes to my mind. It's kind of an odd thing, um, perhaps. I think about the speech that Ronald Reagan made, very similar to speech John F. Kennedy had made sometime before, at the Brandenburg Gate 
in West Berlin during the height of the Cold War, I believe it was 1987, where you, many of you will remember and can hear his voice now, whether you cared for Ronald Reagan or not, this was a great moment of, of oratory and, and, and affected uh, the Cold War. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, if you really believe all the things you're saying, what did he say? He said, tear down this wall. You know, um, I used to think, and boy, some of you were younger who weren't a part of the whole Cold War. You'll be more lost here than you were lost around Melchizedek. But I used to think West Germany came here and East Germany came here and they met and, and Berlin was kind of sitting there on the border. But of course, that, that wasn't how it was. I, I had the privilege of preaching in Berlin back in my 20s, actually, during the Cold War and when I had hair. And, and, and we actually had to travel about 70 miles through communist East Germany in order to get to Berlin. Berlin was situated in the territory of East Germany. But, but you know, at the end of the Second World War, they divided it up in such a way where there was a West Berlin, which was free, and then uh, uh, there was, there was uh, East Berlin, and, and, uh, the, and uh, really it was all in East Germany. Well, at some point after the Second World War, the, 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 the communists were losing so many of their, uh, of their, of their, um, of their citizens to the West, to freedom. They had about three and a half million people who just walked across the border into West Berlin over the course of a few years that they decided it was called a brain drain. Truly, that's what they called it. Everybody with a brain was getting out of the communist-controlled territories, and they were coming to the West where there was freedom. And, and so the, 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 uh, the communists decided that they would build a wall around West Berlin. They were trying to keep people out. So they built a wall on their territory that surrounded West Berlin. It was about a hundred miles in circumference, uh, concrete and barbed wire fencing stuff to keep people out. Well, pretty good timing. But then years of Cold War and statements like Reagan standing there saying, if you believe in freedom, tear this wall down for whatever reason, guys. You know, and, and then many of us lived through seeing that wall come down and the freedom that, that, ha, that, that, that ensued all across uh, East Germany and all across the former Soviet bloc. Um, we witnessed that happen. And, and, and for some reason, when I, I think about Jesus hanging there on the cross, I think about Jesus hanging there on the cross and I think about him giving up his spirit I think about him dying. It's as if I hear Jesus saying, tear that veil down. That veil that surrounded the most holy place that kept people like you and me out of God's presence. That veil that kept people like you and me from a relationship with the God of the universe who loves us and wants to know us and wants to be known by us. Jesus declared that the veil had to come down and that veil, 60 feet long, 30 feet high, four inches wide, ripped in two. And in the holy place, there was surely a priest who was ministering. 
right? Only one guy once a year, the high priest, got to go through the veil in the most holy place. But the holy place, there were pieces of furniture in there, and there was always some member of the Levitical priesthood who was in there working. Imagine the awe, the shock, the terror when that veil ripped in two. And all of a sudden, that priest who'd never even got to peek into God's presence before, all of a sudden is exposed to all of God's glory. And you know he had to think, I've got to get out of here. But if Jesus, if Jesus would have stopped by that most holy place, Jesus would have said to that priest, like he says to all of us, you can come in now. You can come in now. Walk across, walk across the border into my presence. And see, that's what our perfect high priest did for us. He ripped down the barrier that keeps people like you and me from God and all that God is and all that God wants to do in our lives until God now is saying to everyone because of Jesus Christ, you can come in now. You can come in. You can know me. You can ask me for things. You can come in and know that I understand who you are. I understand what you're going through. I understand what you're facing, but you can ask me to help you. Would you stand with me, please?